Well, good to see you all and uh, excited to be continuing through our Book of Acts study. And we're in chapter 23, which is kind of crazy to think we've made it 23 chapters out of the 28. Our hope is to be done before a Christmas series coming up. But if you wouldn't mind turning there, we're in chapter 23, verse 1. And if you've been paying attention in this series, man, things are, are heating up drastically for Paul. Basically, the chaos meter, if there were such a thing, is, is at about a 9.5 for him at this point. If you remember where we've been in the last couple weeks, basically Paul was warned by his best friends or his closest friends saying, do not go to Jerusalem. He ends up uh, going to Jerusalem, being led by the Spirit there. And upon arrival, unfortunately, was abandoned by church leadership there. And then uh, basically beaten by his fellow Jews, then taken prisoner by uh, Rome. So he's now a prisoner in Rome. And now before this proceeds, he's brought before a pretty hostile Sanhedrin environment, which was the governing body of the Jews. So if you're thinking you've had a bad week, like it's nothing in comparison to Paul. Like Paul is going through a really difficult season right now. And it's one of those seasons where you'd start to ask maybe some tough questions of where in the world is God in all this? Has he abandoned me? Has he, has he left me? It's, it's, not a, it's not a one-time event. It's not a, a bad day, but it's turned into a season of challenge and difficulty for Paul. And for, for someone, I imagine, in this room, you would probably say the same. You look across the last couple months and you're like, man, it just seems, or even the last couple years, you're just like, man, it's just been a tough season leaving us with the question as to how to respond when your back's against the wall, when God seems silent, when you feel like there's no way out, how do you respond in that? And I would suggest that Paul, once again, as he has been a great example in other areas of our life, in this particular arena, I would suggest he gets a lot of things right. We're going to see in the text some wrong, some right. I'm excited to see what God has for us in this story. Let me pray before we explore this section of scripture. Lord God, we invite you now to come before us and to engage uh, with us in our study. I thank you that you've entrusted us with this book that has so much to glean from. I ask that you'd sp your spirit would be present and moving even this room that you'd be active just meeting us in our place of need and for the person that's in the middle of their trial, in the middle of having their back against the wall, that these words would come at the exact opportune time for the person that's maybe in a season of non-issue where this isn't as relevant, that they'd be able to tuck this away and save that for the trials in the future, God. We ask that you'd meet us right where we're at and thank you for your faithfulness in doing that. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So chapter 23, verse 1. We're just going to start by reading this first verse and just pointing out some different tools that we can have when our back's against the wall. It says this in verse 1, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Starts with the words, looking intently. Basically, in this intense moment, Paul meets it with his own intensity, looking at this council. As I mentioned, he's been brought before this council. It's called the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of the Jewish people that day and age. But he's brought there under a unique situation where the tribune, the Roman official, has determined to lean into them to find out the accuracy of the claims against Paul. Does that make sense? So he's coming before the, this council 
council and literally with his life on the line. This wasn't a council that had all the initial accusations against him. That was Jewish folks that would be, had lived in the different arenas or areas where Paul had been ministering. But now the Sanhedrin, which was made up of the high priest and 70 different people that were assigned to official, uh, as official kind of governing body over the Jewish people are there standing before him. And he has one chance, kind of one shot, if you will, to address this audience and upon his first chance to speak, his first thing is interesting that he claims to live with a clean conscience before God. That kind of a cool statement as you think about that. Wouldn't that be something that each one of us would want to be able to say about ourselves that we've lived with a clean conscience? I thought I'd take just a minute to talk about uh, the conscience because I think we all have a general understanding, but I want to kind of explore that idea a little bit. The conscience is basically that alarm system that we get from birth that God gives us, non-believer, believers, every single one of us, that alerts us when something is wrong and when something is right. When you're about to do something and you know how anybody kind of reflect back in your days and years and you're like, man, I knew that wasn't right. My conscience was screaming, but I did it anyway. But anyway, the conscience is the idea of that. It's an alarm system that God puts in place for each one of us, I like this description by John MacArthur. The conscience is to our souls what pain sensors are to our body. Kind of like when you're getting close to a hot stove and there, there's something that's like, oh, whoa, I need to step back from that before I get hurt or injured. The thing to understand about one's conscience is this, is that the conscience can only be trusted to the extent it's informed and submitted to God to the extent that it's informed and submitted to God. You see, somebody can have a conscience that just isn't working right. It's uninformed or misinformed or seared. Let me explain those three things. The uninformed is the person that, that isn't rooted in God's word. It's, it's not an educated conscience. It just kind of goes whatever direction the wind blows. We've all come across that person in our life. Or how about this one, which can actually be even more dangerous, the misinformed conscience. The conscience that's, that's been misdirected. You come upon somebody and they have, man, they're so convicted about something, but when you hear what it is they're convicted about, you're like, yeah, but you're wrong. That's not what God's word says. So a misinformed conscience is a dangerous one. Also, the seared conscience is. The more they explore these different mass murderers and find out that, man, their conscience just wasn't working because it's been seared by what? Disobeying or ignoring that voice that comes up inside. Ignoring that, and we all have that choice, and that's a, one of the dangers in ignoring it, is all of a sudden, before you know it, that voice all of a sudden gets quieter and quieter in our ear. My wife and I remember early in our marriage, we were visiting one of my former college roommates and we were spending time with them over dinner. And, and one of the things we commented on at their, at their place, had a real nice house. And we we're like, man, we really, random. I was just like, man, these are really cool, really cool plate set that you have, really pretty plates. And my, my friend goes on to tell me that on his honeymoon, they noticed them at the hotel they were staying at and really liked them and decided to take one set per meal during the course of the week that they were there. I'm like, do you not have a conscience? Like, that's the idea. You can have a conscience and what? just blaze right on past it. He's going on to be a great man of the Lord. I don't know if you ever returned those, but you get the idea here of the conscience. You have a choice what, what you do with it. 
Do you respond to it or do you just move past it? Romans 1 describes the idea of those that move past it, the idea of God turning someone over to their sinful desires. If you choose to neglect it, there you go. Good luck with that. The opposite potential is for us, and what we're trying to do here this morning together, is you can do the opposite and you can educate your conscience. You can actually fill it with God's word and educate your conscience and then actually respond. Imagine that when that voice or that alarm goes off in your mind. And the funny thing is the way that this works is the more you respond to it, the louder it gets. Anybody notice that in your life? Things that you used to blaze past that didn't used to be a big deal, all of a sudden, all of a sudden it starts to trigger and you're like, oh man, I used to have no problem. Let me give you an example of that. I used to have no problem listening to any kind of music that was on the radio. Like it would never phase me. I never thought twice about it. Now, all of a sudden, I've become that guy. The policing, the lyrics, you know, with kids in the car, anybody do this? All of a sudden, you start listening to what they're, they're saying, and you're just like, wait a second. They keep talking about S-E-X in this song, and my kids are listening. Anybody else have that, that issue? Am I the only one noticing this? Or lyrics that are just stupid, that make no sense whatsoever. You see, as you have a heightened conscience, you're more aware of these things in the world around you. And that's what God's left us in the shaping process that he wants to do of making you more and more like him. He's given us the tool of the conscience. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to be able to say what Paul says here in this context? I have a clear conscience before God. Now, what that's not saying is he's not saying that he's without sin. That, that's important to understand here because remember, Paul was self-proclaimed the, the chief of sinners, he described himself. Instead, he's responsive to his conscience. How do we respond to it? When we blow it, here's the right approach. Own it, acknowledge it, confess it, and then move a different direction. We're about to see in a second in this next section of scripture, that's exactly what he does, demonstrating that he has a conscience that's firing on all cylinders. When we're backed against the wall, it is so key that we don't neglect our conscience, that we don't get tired of doing good. So often I counsel people and they're in the middle of whatever heated situation. I'm just like, man, just make sure, take it a day at a time. Make sure that you're able to put your head on the pillow at the end of the day with a clear conscience before God. Whatever is within your responsibilities, make sure that you have a clear conscience. I belabored that point. Let's move on to verse 2. As the story continues, some of you probably already read ahead. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. We'll pause there for a moment, little explanation. First off, you see an emotional response by this Ananias guy to Paul's claim of innocence. And he can't, he can't fathom the idea of him being innocent. So instead, he orders the guy next to him, one of the other council people, to whack him in the mouth. We don't know specifically if it's a punch or a slap or what, 
But in that emotional moment, you see Paul has an emotional response. Before we condemn Paul, though, how would you respond to getting hit in the mouth? Let's, let's just play this out. We're after the service. You're chatting with somebody. You're sharing some ideas. You share your opinion on something, and all of a sudden, crack, you get one right in the kisser, right? Can you imagine that? Your blood's just boiling at the idea of that. All of a sudden, you forget all of your Awana verses, the whole idea of turn the other cheek gets replaced with Old Testament smite thy enemy, right? That, that's what happens with Paul in the middle of this emotional charge. He turns and he responds to him in an emotional way. Here's the important thing to understand about the scripture. Not everything is a description of what you should do, but is a description of what he did do. Are we tracking with me? Now, everything is an antidote like, oh yeah, that gives me the green light. When somebody does something to me, I whack them or I lay into them. No, that's not what it's saying here. We're seeing his humanity. And in fact, this guy Ananias was quite a piece of work. When you do a little study on Ananias. He was the high priest at that time, but he was actually appointed as the high priest by the Roman official, the brother of Herod Agrippa. So he's a Roman appointed high priest. You imagine that wouldn't be well received in that day and age. He's known for his greed and his abuse of power. Jewish historian, I thought this was interesting. Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when the Jews gained their independence from Rome about 10 years later, one of their first actions was to execute their high priest. So this guy was not necessarily a well-loved guy, but either way, he was in that position of authority, and Paul starts first off saying, man, you hit me? Now God's gonna take you out. Kind of like this big brother idea there. And then he turns to something that so often we do in emotion, starts going down the road of what? Name-calling. What does he refer to him as? A whitewashed wall. Now, when I was growing up in junior high, on our walks home from school, we did a silly thing, me and my friends. We would actually take turns, and we'd have what was called burn fights, where kids would actually go toe-to-toe, and the whole walk home, think of mean things to say about each other back and forth. It was a, a fight, but with words. Isn't that terrible? Well, one thing I remember is not at any point in any of those burn fights did we ever use the word whitewashed wall. I don't know. Maybe that would have been the one that got the victory. But here in this place, whitewashed wall, it actually meant something. You guys want to hear what it meant? Like, because you're like reading scripture and you're like, what is that talking about? Whitewashed wall, this is the idea, is an old building. As it was getting kind of broken down and decrepit, they would take kind of a, a white paint and water mixture and kind of go over the walls of it to what? Make it look good on the outside, even despite it breaking down on the inside. This is the same accusation that Jesus made of the scribes and Pharisees. Do you remember that? He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. That was a good one too. But this idea is what? Hypocrisy. You look really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're a mess. That's what he's saying to this high priest. You look great on the outside. You look all clean and tidy and you've got your front that you're putting on, but he's saying, man, you're responsible for enforcing this law, but you're willing to break the law yourself in the midst of that. How messed up is that is what Paul is pointing out. Paul, in the middle of this heated emotional response is what? He's confronted by those in the council. What did they say to him? What is the, the words they say? 
Would you revile God's high priest? This idea would, in other words, the, notice the, the use of word there, God's high priest, making sure that he's clear that this is someone that God had appointed into that role. You see, the way that it had worked is all the way from the time back with Moses, with the Israelites, is they had Moses that had then 70 people assigned that by God to help support him that formed kind of the council of leadership back then. So that was a tradition that had been carried all the way to present date. So the high priest was in essence sitting in Moses' seat. And if you know anything about the folks of that time, they held Moses in very high regard. So this was a, a big no-no to talk trash to the high priest. And that's exactly what Paul was in the middle of doing. And I love to see how Paul chooses to respond. Instead of digging in and saying, he deserved it, he is a hypocrite, what does he say? It's like, man, I blew it. I didn't know it was him. I didn't know who he was. I broke, and he refers to Exodus twenty two twenty eight. the idea that I'm not to speak evil of a ruler over the people, this idea that he had an educated conscience, and he responds to it appropriately. He owns it. He, ta he takes ownership of that. He doesn't respond to emotion with emotion. What an awesome thing. What an awesome response to when you've blown it, when you've actually dropped the ball. Two very applicable uh, uh, ways to respond to that. The first thing, and we're trying to apply this present day, is he's demonstrating the fact that emotion, in the middle of an emotional situation, when your back's against the wall, sometimes the last thing that's needed is more emotion, right? I've heard it said before that emotion makes a wonderful caboose, but a lousy engine. In other words, it's good to have emotion. That's important for us. You don't want to be emotionless. But man, it can't be driving the train. It can't be driving the train. Man, so many of us, if you think through the different broken relationships or severed relationships over the years, how many of them came because of a moment of what? Emotion. You're backed against the wall. For Paul setting this example is when we do blow it, own it, but emotion can't be how we respond. The other valuable lesson here in that little section, and probably a little bit less popular, is the idea that we are to respect the position the person holds, even if you don't respect the person who holds the position. How in the world would that statement be relevant in today's culture? Anybody have any suggestions, any ideas? Anybody consider our political uh, climate at all? Is there the possibility to maybe hold the position in high regard? And even if you don't respect the person in position, wouldn't that be a teachable moment for us still today? It's pretty sad if you think about how our emotions can make us so self-righteous that we say and do the most unrighteous things here Paul responds appropriately, recognizing that we're not, we, you can disagree, but don't disrespect critical in our current political climate, simply told to pray for our leaders. Moving on, verse six. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? We'll stop there for a moment. A huge challenge, I would suggest, for those of you who are married or for siblings, is this. Once you know what someone's hot buttons are, what their button is, making the choice not to press it. Anybody else have a hard time with that in, in the room? Knowing a person, the, the longer you get to know somebody, you start to figure out what it is that, man, if I, if I bring that up, if I push that button, that's not going to go well. Anybody guilty of this at some point in their marriage, pressing some buttons? Come on, guys, we're in church. Be honest here. It can be more serious things or it can be more fun things. I'll share one just uh, to kind of warm the room up. My wife and I, my wife has, has kind of a little nuance of kind of how she ends her day. There used to be a show in the early 2000s with this guy. His name is Flavor Flav. Anybody remember this guy? Wore a clock as a necklace. Anybody uh, remember he had a couple reality shows? And he kind of had, when he entered a room, he would always self-promote himself with a statement. He would always go, Flavor Flav. Anybody remember this? I'm embarrassing myself right now. You guys, do you know what I'm talking about? Somebody help me. Okay, so my wife, at the end of a long day, you know how when you're really kind of worn out, you do that kind of exhale thing at the end of a day? She always does this little exhale, and I always call her on it. She goes, hmm, hmm, hmm. I'm like, honey, you're doing the Flavor Flav exhale again. And she's like, I'm not doing Flav. And she, I don't think she ever knew him or knew the thing, but she does this exhale consistently on Thursday when she was in the service. I mentioned this, and from the audience, she said, no, I don't. And so, so it's clearly what? A hot button. Once you know a hot button in someone's life, you have choices what to do with that. Paul, here in this situation, believing that he was not going to get a fair trial, what does he do? He knows the hot button, and guess what he does? Pushes it as hard as he possibly can. Pushes into the audience, knowing that he's going to get an emotional response from that group of people. And what is the hot topic? What's the hot button? This is a group. It's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, two kind of political uh, groups and, and religious leaders. Basically, they were at odds each other in every practical way, socially, politically theologically, so below the surface, it didn't take much to push their hot button. The hot button that he does, he says, you know what, I'm not going to get a fair trial, so I need to identify with one of these two groups in order to what? In, in political climates, they do this all the time. To what? Divide the group. So he's using his noggin. He's saying, he's assessing the situation, using his God-given discernment and saying, what's going to divide this group? I know one, he says, I am a Pharisee. So who's he teaming? Which team is he going on? Pharisees or Sadducees? Participation. Pharisees. Okay, so he's, he's claiming, I'm a Pharisee and I'm a son of Pharisees, plural. In other words, generations of Pharisees. He's pointing, he's, he's clearly identifying his camp and then he throws the hand grenade into the room. He says, I'm being held and charged for my belief in the resurrection. And in that group, and Luke points this out, that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
So he's basically taking this hot topic of the resurrection. The Sadducees believe that you just lived your life and at the end you breathe your last breath and that's it. There's no afterlife. There's no dealing with reward or punishment. That's what they clung to. The Pharisees believed in both. The idea that there was an afterlife and there was life after death. So he's taking this and he's dividing the room right down the middle for they're left to determine who do they hate more, each other or Paul? Who do we see that they actually hate more? Each other. That's good news for Paul. He divides the room and look at the conclusion that the Pharisees come up with. He says, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? little subtle uh, thing that you'll notice in that statement. They're not willing because the, Paul's claims was that he had met with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Remember, that was his claim that they were criticizing. He had met the road. So there's, they're not willing to acknowledge that it was Jesus they encountered, but it might have been a spirit or an angel that spoke to him. Either way, it causes a, a crazy tension within the group. So often when we're backed against the wall, we kind of throw our brain to the corner. We're just like, hey, we, we're just illogical. We make dumb decisions. We do all kinds of the, all things that we would say normally, I would never do that. When we're backed against the wall, so often we're like, why are you doing that? You know better than that. What, what, what are you thinking? When you're in the middle of trial and chaos, you can't leave God's God-given discernment on the wayside. You have to stay the course and use the resources that he's given you. When they're in this frenzy, verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So bring him back to the camp, if you will. In this point, it got so violent. Can you imagine that in our Supreme Court or Senate, which was basically what that was, is that it got so violent that they're like, wait a second, they're gonna literally tear this person apart physically. That's the, that's the degree of emotion that was attached to the, the, in, that, in that room in pretty dark time as far as the leadership of the Jews at that day, in that day and age. They're revealing their true colors in God at the very last possible moment, decides to pluck Paul and save his life. Second time that he's saved by the Roman uh, leaders of that time, literally pulls him out of that situation and pulls him to safety. Think about that for Paul. This was in a, in a, in a sense, probably a pretty discouraging thing, right? So long he had wanted to have a shot at addressing the religious people to share his testimony and all that God had done. And he got a few statements in and that was it. Never a chance again to speak to this group. That was his one shot. And you start to realize, wait a second, it didn't matter if Paul had the most logical presentation of the gospel. If he would have had given the platform, here's the mic, here's a half an hour, you can share all that you know. If a person or a group of people's hearts are not in the right place, it really makes no difference how great of a presentation you have. That's why prayer is so key behind the scenes that God would change people's hearts, would soften them, make them receptive to what God's going to do in them. I had a chance this last week to watch the movie 
by the name Unbroken. I don't know if you guys have heard of this movie. It's actually the second part. Pretty powerful film. I definitely recommend it to anyone here. It's a story of the Olympian and World War II hero, Louis Zamperini, who uh, I later found out was kind of cool that his son actually used to play in the worship band here at the church, and he's actually been to a service at our church here before. It's kind of a cool background, but his story, watching that on the big screen, man, the whole time you're watching that, you're almost, you're, you're on the edge of your seat and you're like, man, God has to step in and rescue this guy. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing on a human effort that can be done to solve this situation. You almost feel like that in life in general. Is, isn't that a wonderful place to arrive at? When you finally are like, you know what? I can't do anything here. I just have to sit back and wait for God to show up acknowledging my fact that I can't solve this, only he can. When you're backed against the wall, so often it's what? Just a waiting game, waiting for God to show up, to do what he always does. And it might not be in the time frame that you would like, but man, our God is faithful in providing exactly what we need when we need it. We see that also in verse 11. The following night, I love this verse. The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You see what happens there? So a day after this, so you imagine Paul, Paul's there kind of feeling discouraged about how things went. He's, he's kind of replaying that conversation and kind of how that whole thing played out. He's like, man, that didn't go exactly like I had hoped. I love that Jesus literally decides to show up and comfort him himself. Literally shows up. What would that be like in your, your prayer time if literally Jesus came and stood by you and said, you know what? I love his word there. Take courage. Jesus never ever tells us to find courage or get courage. What does he say? Take courage. In other words, here, I have it for you. It's here. It's provided. Take some of my courage because I'm not, what is he basically saying there? I'm not finished with you yet. You faithfully proclaim me before this group of people. Now I'm going to give you a shot to do that in Rome. Right at the center of the bullseye of where Paul had hoped at some point to share the gospel message. Basically reminding him that he hasn't left him. He hasn't abandoned him. He hasn't, he hasn't forgotten about him. He's still there, still in control, still has a plan. Isn't that awesome to know? Some people here this morning, I'd suggest, might need to be reminded of that. We still have a God that's reigning over all of this. He hasn't left you, hasn't abandoned you. He's still in control. And the good news, he actually has a plan, even if it doesn't seem like it. Here, this would have, I imagine, from that day forward, he has some uh, tough days ahead of him. I imagine that encounter was something that he held on to dearly. You imagine whatever was gonna kind of come the next season, he could often look back at that and be like, man, God provided for me there. He reminded me of that. I'm not gonna forget. So often when we're backed against the wall and God seems silent, that's the other resource that we have is to look back at his track record of faithfulness in your life. Look back and be like, man, remember when we thought that would never work out? Remember when we thought that was a huge failure, that was gonna crash and burn, and man, he showed up. Man, so often in the Christian life, that's what's critical for us to hold on to is past encounters with God, where he's been completely faithful. He has a beautiful track record in your life that we're so quick to forget. 
And it's not always literally physically showing up. Sometimes it's through a, a word from a friend. Sometimes it's a, a Bible verse. Sometimes it's even a, a song that you may have heard about God's faithfulness. I don't know what the encounter has looked like in your life. Sometimes it's even the miraculous. We were in our life group this last week and following the instructions and the little question thing that you get on the back of that card each week. And one of the, the things on the card was to talk through your testimony. Had to share kind of our story of how we came to encounter Christ or came to know Christ kind of telling what was life like before, what was our encounter with Christ like, what was life like after. And in that story, it kind of snowballed after people had shared into some other stories of God's faithfulness. So we came to this cool conclusion, like sharing your testimony isn't just restricted to when you first accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It can also be times where he was unbelievably faithful in your life. So we started sharing uh, stories and Ryan Shoden, who's a police officer in our uh, life group, shared a story. He's like, yeah, I've got one of those for sure. And he was starting to tell us a story. He's like, man, when I was a young dad, when, uh, when Bella his daughter was still in the crib. He's telling the story how he was in a, a deep sleep, totally out of it. He said, in the middle of my sleep, for whatever reason, God woke me up, told me that my daughter was choking and that I needed to go in and rescue. And he said, in one instant, I was awake and running to her room, goes into her room, reaches into her mouth and pulls out a tag from a blanket that was stuck in the back of her throat. Literally, in, in that moment, in that instant, God's reminder for him was, I'm paying attention to you. I'm paying attention. I'm watching over you. A little belly now running around being a teenager, whatever teenagers do, because what? We have a God that cares, a God that does watch, that does observe, that is engaged in our lives. And man, sometimes we need that reminder from the past to carry us through even the most present day trying circumstances. Those are some wonderful resources that I identified in this section of scripture that I think each one of us can hold on to. Keeping a clear conscience. When your back's against the wall, making sure you don't get tired of doing what's right. Keeping your emotions in check. Don't allow them to drive the train. Using your God-given discernment. Don't letting that be put by the wayside. Often some of us need to hear, just wait on God, be patient. Maybe this last one, clinging to the past encounters as a monument of God's faithfulness in your life. I'm not sure what God had for you this morning, but I'm confident if you actually dwell on these, God has something for each one of us in this. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you for your word and how relevant it is and the examples that were set for us. Not always perfect examples, and I'm actually grateful for the humanity of Paul we saw in his response here but examples nonetheless where there's lots of things that can be gleaned from their life, God. I know that in this room, that when we're t putting that topic of uh, when your, your back's against the wall or whatever title that is there, that there's plenty here that would acknowledge that's where they're at this morning. I pray, God, that you would do the work behind the scenes, God, that you would meet them in their place of need. They would encounter you afresh, a new God, that they would recognize you, whether it's in present day through someone's uh, words of encouragement, a scripture that maybe we read this morning, maybe a song, some lyrics that were said, God, either way, my prayer is for an encounter with you. And if they're grasping for that, that they would hold on to past encounters in the meantime, 
We thank you for your amazing track record of faithfulness, God. You're so good and worthy of our praise. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.